for a job in a factory. So like you would with almost any other job, you reach out to one and tell them you're available. And they tell you they don't hire directly. Instead, you get a phone number for a temp agency. So you dial the number, they ask you a few questions, and two weeks later, you get a call telling you to show up for work the next day at an industrial bakery. That's what happened to Toronto Star reporter Sara Morstehetsade. It's loud, it's, it's full of heavy equipment, uh, you're, you're working around machinery and, and forklifts, so it's not like, you know, grandma's bakery. Sarah decided to go undercover in the factory after a young temporary worker died there in 2016. The woman's headscarf got caught in machinery that wasn't properly guarded. She was the third person in almost two decades to die in one of the company's factories, and like so many of the other workers, she was a recent immigrant. Her story in many ways was was typical of a lot of newcomers in the workplace. You know, they they might not have the language skills or, or the training or the experience working in an industrial environment. And so they are particularly vulnerable to, to accidents. Sarah said her experience in the factory is a far cry from how this work used to go. Fifty years ago, working in a factory could be a good steady job with benefits and decent pay. It was always hard, but workers may have been in a union and they often stuck with the company for life. Now they often get this. Temporary work, minimum wage pay, and little in the way of health and safety training. On this week's episode, Sarah describes her exhaustive search for the family of the woman who died, her decision to go undercover, and her year-long investigation into the use of temp agencies in Canada. I'm Erin McKinstry, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Sara Morstahatsade was hired as a work and wealth reporter at the Toronto Star in 2014. The labor beat had all but disappeared from most newsrooms. My position was created really to address that and to kind of, I guess, um, reinvent the labor beat in a way that reflects how our workplace has changed. So I don't, I don't write as much about like union politics and that kind of thing, but I focus more on precarious work and, and, um, and things like temp agencies or, or injured workers, um, people who may not have the, the protection of the union. So when ProPublica published a story a few years back that found temp agency workers in the U.S. were more likely to be injured on the job than permanent ones, it piqued Sarah's interest. She wanted to know if the same was true for Canada and for her province of Ontario. I'd heard anecdotally all of these things about how the temp agency industry has really changed and the ways in which employers are using temp agencies to try and get around some of their um, workplace responsibilities. She'd done some reporting on temp agencies, but nothing that would merit an investigation. And in comparison to the U.S., Canada's national statistics body doesn't keep great publicly available data on temporary workers. 
So that's problematic because, first of all, it, it's hard to paint a picture of what the industry looks like, but also hard to figure out what the injury rates are and that type of thing without having a base number of how many people are actually employed in, through temp agencies. So Sarah decided to collect the data herself. She put an open records request to the workers' compensation boards in each province. She wanted to know if temporary workers were more likely to get injured on the job than permanent ones. It's really a mishmash. Like some compensation boards didn't keep the data at all, so they just had nothing. Others had some of it. Um, Others had the information but wouldn't release it for like their freedom of information laws allowed them to block access to the numbers. She made a map of Canada with a color-coded legend to keep track of the status of her requests in every province. And although she had difficulty getting consistent statistics across Canada, Sara did find that in her home province of Ontario, the office was particularly helpful. They really spent a lot of time making sure that we were comparing apples and apples and, and making sure that it was all accurate. So that was kind of a new experience for me in terms of, like, usually you don't get that kind of um, support in my experience from Freedom of Information offices. And it was the first time that this data has really been released in Canada, as far as I know. The Toronto Star worked with Ontario's Workers' Compensation Board to crunch the numbers. And they found that temporary workers employed in factories and industrial environments were twice as likely to be injured as non-temporary ones working in the same sorts of places. We ended up mostly focusing on Ontario, which is my province, not just because um, that's like mainly our audience, but also because Ontario is really the epicenter of the temp agency industry. It's really driving the industry, and in particular, our city, Toronto, Um, has a huge number of temp agencies, more than seven other provinces uh, across Canada combined. Something about the element of temporary work was making it more likely for this group of laborers to get hurt, and Sara needed to figure out why. So she turned her eye to Ontario's factories. I literally just started off by combing through um, hundreds of court bulletins that the Ministry of Labor issues every time a worker is injured or killed on the job and isolating those instances where the worker was hired through a temp agency. And that's how I came across uh, this factory in Toronto where a temp agency worker had died a couple of years ago. With a bit more research, she realized that in fact two temp agency workers had died at a Fiera Foods factory or one of its affiliates. Fiera Foods is an industrial bakery in Toronto, and they distribute things like bagels and croissants to places like Dunkin' Donuts, Costco, and Tim Hortons, which is one of the biggest coffee chains in Canada. It's a pretty big factory. Fiera Foods can churn out two million bagels in a day. Sara started by requesting their health and safety records. She also requested court transcripts from government prosecutions and lawsuits from disgruntled former employees and their relatives. She found that over the last two decades, Fiera Foods had been reprimanded 191 times for health and safety violations. And then a young woman working in a Fiera Foods factory got her headscarf caught in a piece of machinery that wasn't properly guarded. It strangled her to death. That was what kind of got us focused in on that one factory, which which we sort of felt was a microcosm of what was happening more broadly uh, in workplaces across the province. 
One of the things Sarah was learning was that the nature of temp work had dramatically changed in Canada and across North America. In the past, temp agencies were used primarily to fill office and short-term jobs, probably how you would think of them. But now, she said, factories and industrial companies were using them more and for semi-permanent positions, which reduced liability. If a temp worker got hurt, the workers' compensation claim fell in the temp agency, not the factory. It would take a year's worth of searching and the help of another reporter for Sara to find out the name and the story of the woman who died in the factory. But while the search was underway, her death prompted another investigation. That was kind of the tipping point as to when we started having really sort of earnest discussions about going undercover. Reporters have been going undercover to expose wrongdoing since Nellie Bly disguised herself as a patient in an insane asylum and uncovered the atrocities of 19th century mental hospitals. But the legacy of undercover reporting doesn't negate the serious ethical and legal considerations that come along with it. Different news organizations have different rules, but most would only allow the practice when the story can't be brought to light any other way and when the public interest is very, very high. When Sara approached her editors about going undercover in a Fiera Foods factory, she felt like both were true of the story she wanted to pursue. We didn't want to make it just about this factory because that's not what it's about. It's about an entire system. And so we put in FOIs that really got to that. So we you know, requested data and statistics that would really paint that overall picture um, of, of why temp agency workers are particularly vulnerable. So, so we felt really confident on the, the public interest element. And she felt like she couldn't get the story any other way. By the very nature of that form of employment, um, these workers were so precarious, you know, that the, the temp agency in the factory didn't need a reason to let them go. Um, you know, they can just say, there's no work, don't show up tomorrow, and that's it. Um, so we felt that we couldn't really ask people to, to put their job on the line to, to speak publicly for this type of big investigation. That's when we really decided um, that not only was there a compelling public interest to go undercover, but really it was the only way to tell the story properly. The Toronto Star has a set of policies and procedures for going undercover. They have meetings with the paper's lawyer, managing editor, and editor-in-chief. We really just hashed out all the reasons why this was necessary, what the public interest was, whether there were other ways to tell the story. So we had a couple of those kinds of meetings, and eventually um, our editor-in-chief signed off on it. Sarah's editors also wanted to talk about something she hadn't really thought about. The effect that going undercover for about a month would have on her personally. You know, my editors here who had had experience with these types of stories before sort of warned me going in that um, it's, it's difficult to, to misrepresent yourself for an extended period of time to people who you are going to end up forming relationships with. They thought it would take about a month to get a good sense of what was happening inside the factory. In that time, Sarah would need to be careful that she didn't become too close with any of the workers around her. And you have to work to maintain that that objectivity and that sense of being an outsider in a way that you don't usually have to do as a, as a journalist. 
So with the paper's approval, Sara went looking for a job. Fiera Foods referred her to a temp agency where she was put on a waiting list. The agency asked for her name and immigration status, but no employment history. Sara gave them her grandmother's last name. Two weeks later, she got a call. They said show up to the factory the next day with, with safety shoes, and that was pretty much it. So so once we actually got the go-ahead to, to do it, um, getting inside the factory was pretty simple. Sarah's first day, she arrived at the factory at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were basically taken into a break room um, where all of the workers were waiting to start their, their shift. Um, sort of noisy and chaotic space. There was no lockers for anyone, so everyone's belongings are just sort of piled in a corner um, on shelves. Um, my training took about five minutes from start to finish. Um, so essentially, I was told that I that I had the right to refuse unsafe work, and if I didn't feel safe doing something, then I could go home and wait for the temp agency to call me again. Um, and I was told not to put my hand in a machine, and basically the shift started uh, immediately after. No one showed her where the fire exits were, and she didn't get any specialized training. The shop floor was packed with industrial equipment. It was noisy, the floor slippery and dirty. Sarah said the pace was intense. For eight hours a day, she folded croissants on the production line. You're grabbing the raw dough off the conveyor belt and folding it and then packing it into plastic trays, which are quite slippery and, you know, sort of cut your hands up and then putting them back on the conveyor belt. And um, you're just sort of being shouted at to move faster, you know, wake up, work harder. You're not even thinking really about safety. You're just thinking, you know, how do I, how do I keep up? Sarah struggled to make it through her eight-hour shift. She's able-bodied and young, and for her, the situation was temporary. But for many of the women around her, working in the factory was the only option. You know, obviously, I was very conscious the whole time that I was there that uh, I had the choice to leave whenever I wanted to or whenever I felt uncomfortable. And most of the people who I, who I spoke to on my production line who were all women, mostly people of color, mostly new arrivals to Canada, did not have that option and, and didn't have that privilege. Sarah would take notes on her phone during breaks and write up a full summary of the day when she got home at night. She also used a spy camera to film in the factory, but later blurred out the faces of the workers to protect their identities. For her, safeguarding these already vulnerable workers was incredibly important. And soon, she found what her editors told her was true. It was emotionally exhausting to lie to the women she worked with. There were a couple of times, for example, where like, I felt if I was just normal me, I would have offered one of the girls a ride home or something like that. Um, and like built that bond further. Um, but I, I had to sort of build a little bit of a wall because if I was perceived as getting too close to some of the girls by the supervisors and it was obvious who I was sort of really close to, I was worried that that would get them in trouble later on. 
She stayed in constant communication with her editors, which helped, she said, because they were incredibly supportive. And she tried to be more of an observer than a participant, making small talk, but nothing more. I tried to go about it as delicately and as responsibly as I could. Then came another surprise. When it came time for Sara to pick up her paycheck, she didn't get it from the factory or the temp agency. Instead, she was given an address about a half hour from the factory. And when she got there, she found she was at a payday lender. You know, the places with bright neon signs advertising quick cash. They paid her in cash, provided no pay stub, and took out no deductions. That violated Ontario law, and it raised all kinds of questions for Sara. What does the worker do if they get injured or, or don't get paid? And the temp agency that hired them is nothing more uh, than a P.O. box or, you know, the office doesn't really exist or, you know, they, they're getting paid through this payday lender who has absolutely no, you know, obligations or relationship with them, really. It's a situation she wouldn't have found out about if she hadn't gone undercover. After about a month, she felt like that information, coupled with her own experience working in the factory, was enough to tell the story. Her last day was a Friday, and she says she remembers it well. We had been asked to come in on the Saturday. Um, our sort of schedules, like we would find out sort of last minute whether we would be working the weekend or not. Um, and I remember the woman who I was working with on the production line that day uh, saying, you know, you, you, should, you should go home and rest and she's a grandmother herself, you know, taking care of her her family on, on top of working in this very physically demanding job. And I remember that day she was um, really in pain. Her back was really hurting. Um, but she said, you know, I need the money, so I'm, I'm coming in tomorrow. And I just felt this really horrible sinking kind of feeling of guilt because, again, I had the choice to leave. I, I knew I wasn't going to come back. Sarah put in a call to the temp agency that hired her. Here's the audio from her call, which the star published along with the final story. I was placed at um, Sierra Foods, um, but we, um, we have a sickness in my family, and I'm not going to be able to go back to the factory. Um, and I was wondering... Um, how I get my record of employment. Oh, we don't do that. We don't issue a record of employment. Oh, so should I ask the factory for it? or? No, we don't do record of employment, no job letters, and no pay stubs. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, all right, thank you. No problem. Bye. Bye. They had photos from the hidden camera and Sara's personal experience. They had the data to back up their story. And they had several off-the-record interviews with the women Sara had worked with. It was important for her to protect their identities so they wouldn't lose their jobs at the factory. Sara said the women were surprised to learn who she really was. I'm not sure that the people who I ended up sort of going back to and, and telling about the story and, and what was it was sort of focused on would ever feel comfortable articulating those things themselves. I think that they felt the story was accurate, and I think that's the best I can do as a reporter, really. 
Now, Sara needed three things. To nail down an interview with Fiera Foods, to identify and interview the owner of the temp agency she'd worked for, and to identify the young woman who died in the factory shortly before Sara went undercover. But none of those things were easy. It took about a year from start to finish for Sara and her colleague Brendan Kennedy, an investigative reporter at the Toronto Star, to identify the temporary worker who died. Oddly enough, Sara said, Canadian authorities don't typically release the names of victims of industrial accidents. We started off by trying to go all the official routes, so the Ministry of Labor, the coroner's office, the police station. We kind of took to just like hanging out at the police station nearby the factory um, in quiet hours, hoping that someone would tell us something. None of that worked. So Sarah started to think about the women she'd worked with in the factory and the communities they represented. I knew that she she um, was Muslim and that she ha- had been wearing a headscarf. So um, I noticed that there were quite a few women from Eritrea who wore headscarves uh, who I worked with. So I started calling around the Eritrean community in Toronto. She found someone who'd been working in the factory the day the woman had died. And that person thought the woman had been Zambian. So she tried calling the Zambian embassy, but no luck there. I tried calling random Zambians in Toronto, was getting nowhere with that. And then a week later, this woman called back and said she'd got it wrong and that the woman was actually from Gambia. So she called the Gambian Cultural Association in Toronto and a man picked up. Um, And I told him why I was calling and he said, oh yeah, that's my friend's wife. Um, And it turned out that she wasn't from Gambia at all, um, and neither was her husband. They just happened to be friends with this guy at the Gambian Cultural Association of Toronto. So it was really just pure luck in a way that, that we found them. The woman's name was Amina Diaby. She was a 23-year-old recent immigrant from Guinea. She'd come to Canada um, escaping a forced marriage. Um, She met her husband here. He was a refugee from Sierra Leone, and they wanted to start a family. Um, She wanted to become a nurse. She was trying to save up for nursing school. So she'd taken a job as a temporary worker in the factory. She'd only been on the job two weeks when her job got caught in the machinery. To me, it felt like her story had sort of been forgotten in all of this, you know, this young woman with a really bright future ahead of her who'd come here to start a new life um, and and died, uh, really just seemed kind of swept under the carpet. Sarah eventually found Amina's family, and they were open to talking with her. So when I went to meet her husband, Sununu, um, it, it was a, an emotional encounter for me because I had spent so long looking for this family and we felt so strongly that, you know, her story deserved to be told and that she deserved um, to have a platform to, to, to talk about what happened in, in this really tragic workplace accident. And, you know, she deserved to have a name. He really felt that the communication with the authorities had been lacking, that he was really not kept in the loop as to what happened to his wife. And actually, you know, I I had to be the one who sort of explained what I knew about what happened in the accident because 
he still wasn't sure what had actually killed his wife. Sarah shared what she knew. That following Amina's death, the authorities had issued a number of orders for health and safety violations, and that the machine that the headscarf was caught in wasn't properly guarded. But she said by that point, the details didn't really matter to him. He'd lost his wife, and he was devastated. Her husband told me that he had become so disillusioned with his life in Canada. He had come here, you know, to set up a new life and sort of start afresh. And, and then this horrible accident happened. And he just he felt like he wanted to go home. He wanted to go back to Sierra Leone. But he couldn't because he couldn't afford to repatriate her body. And he buried Amina in Toronto and he didn't want to leave her behind. In a video interview with the Toronto Star, Amina's brother-in-law explained that the day she died, the factory didn't even shut down. I work on a construction site. Even if somebody break the leg, the job site will shut down. I know that. But this factory seemed like nothing happened. So nothing, like nobody cared. Even the people who were supposed to give you information, you ask them, they seem like they don't care. Like no, nothing stopped, no job stopped. So that makes me even, uh, like when I get there, when I see the ambulance, I say, you know what, she must be okay. Because nothing stopped. Like, you know, this is Canada. Like something, somebody died in a job site or something bad happened, they should stop the job. But nothing stopped. He described Amina as full of life. Someone who could always make you laugh. Now that Sarah had the story of Amina and experience inside the factory, she had to confront the owners. She gave Fiera Foods ample time to respond and requested an in-person interview with leaders. We approached the factory, Farah, um, in the first instance with a sort of general outline of, of what we were looking at in the story without saying that we'd gone undercover. It was more sort of a, a generalized account of, of the health and safety issues that we'd found through freedom of information requests, etc. They denied the request for an interview and sent back a boilerplate response. So Sarah told them she'd gone undercover and sent a list of detailed questions. In response to that, we got a 10-page letter from their in-house counsel that essentially started out by um, listing all of our wrongdoing in their words and then responding to, to some of the things that we had seen whilst working undercover at, at the factory. Fiera Foods said Sarah had made no attempt to contact them before going undercover, so she'd violated the ethics guidelines put out by the Canadian Association of Journalists. They also said that by using a fake name and false documents, she'd committed forgery. And that was followed by a communication from an outside law firm who they ended up hiring, um, I guess, to um, bolster their position. Um, as well as a criminal attorney who was specifically, I guess, looking into whether I, as a journalist, um, could uh, be charged with, with anything criminal um, because I went undercover. The company never took legal action against the paper. They also never agreed to an interview. 
so the Toronto Star ended up publishing their lengthy written correspondence as an attachment to their story. I'm sure every reporter has gone through this. You write a story, um, you include a response from someone, and they feel that, you know, you, you should have used more of their quotes or not enough of their response was included. Um, and we really just didn't want to give any any sort of opportunity for for complaints on that front. We were happy to include the entire correspondence, everything that they said in response, all of the questions that we asked, and give readers a sense of, of what it's like to try and negotiate getting information and answers uh, in an investigation. Sarah also needed to track down the owner of the temp agency she'd worked for. But it wasn't easy. Neither of the listed addresses for the company led to an actual office. I'd actually put in a freedom of information request where I'd gotten all the details of the temp agencies in my province, including their names and addresses. And we just started looking them up and and essentially noticing that um, there was a whole range of temp agencies that seemed to be operating in this sort of fly-by-night fashion. They eventually found the owner's address. It led to a sleek mansion in a wealthy part of town. We went to his house. We called. Um, we left letters requesting interviews. Um, eventually, uh, Brendan, my my colleague, um, went to his house and and happened and the, the temp agency owner happened to be leaving at the same time. So he hand delivered the letter and asked him to get in touch with us. And so he, his lawyer eventually contacted us and um, responded by, by email to our questions. The company denied any wrongdoing and wrote that they provide written health and safety materials to employees and that they make sure that they're capable of working in a manufacturing environment. They also denied any connection to the payday lender where Sarah had been told to pick up her paycheck. In, in both instances with both the temp agency and Sierra, we really tried to give them every opportunity to respond in full. We, you know, left plenty of time between first contacting them and our scheduled publication date so that, you know, we could go back and forth. And and we really wanted to convince them to have a sit-down interview with us um, and, and sort of give them time to, I guess, mull over that request and, and to give fulsome responses to the questions that we ended up putting in writing to them. They ended up publishing the story in a two-part series. The first focused on Sara's experience going undercover. The second focused on the story of Amina and her family. Within days of publishing, Fiera Foods said they were going to review their use of temp agencies and conduct an internal audit. And coincidentally, a week after the story ran, the company was convicted of health and safety violations and fined $300,000 in the wake of Amina's death. The Toronto Star story was cited in the court hearings. There's also a piece of legislation on the table in Ontario to add more protections for temp workers. Sarah said she'd been writing smaller stories about temp agencies for a while. And finally, she got people's attention. Once it was published and you know, it got a lot of great pickup um, and people read it, which is always a great feeling as a reporter. And so that that felt really nice um, just because it's an issue that really doesn't get that much attention um, because I think the workers involved are, are workers who, you know, who don't 
they don't have access to the corridors of power. They're they're kind of this invisible workforce, and so it felt it felt good to to kind of carve out a space for them. I guess the other emotion was that there's always like you always feel there's more work to be done, and and so you don't really get that sense of closure. It's sort of like okay, what's next, and how do we keep pushing? Uh, this story forward. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the STARS series and resources for reporting on the workplace. Also keep an eye out for a bonus episode about the legal implications of going undercover in the United States. Next time on the podcast, Abby Ivory-Ganya looks at a deep dive into evictions by the Detroit News. When I got down there, it was just, it was kind of like choking. And you're, you know, you're, you're wa- splashing through this water and he, and the dad is walking me through and showing me they had two sump pumps that they had basically burned through to, to pump the, they were doing it like three times a week to pump the sewage out. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And you can always binge listen to our archives of over 60 episodes at ire.org slash podcast. The IRE podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Erin McKinstry. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Podcast. Podcast.